tonight, uh, we're going to go to a place called the City of David. And our purpose, as I think you know by now, is to visit there a little bit from the comfort of our seats so as to derive one singular practical life lesson from this place by which we can live. So the city of David, I I bet you're familiar with it uh, somewhat, but did you know it's actually Jerusalem? Uh, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem we know of today, this fairly large city, began here as the city of David, and then it expanded to the Jerusalem we know of today. It was on a hill, a ridge to be more precise, and it was bounded on three sides by valleys. On the east, you probably know of this valley, the Kidron Valley. And then there was one on the west and also on the south. Much, particularly in modern times, archaeological uh, investigation of the area, the city of David, has taken place, and they have unearthed all manner of striking and interesting things, not the least of which is an ancient water system, quite ingenious. They found a shaft, a naturally occurring one, enlarged by the residents of this city of David, but mostly naturally occurring, through which they would drop buckets And uh, from it, they could pull up water uh, emanating from the Gihon Spring. And the significance of that water supply is that the Gihon Spring was on the eastern slope of the city of David. So that the residents of this place uh, could access water without leaving the protective uh, and secure walls with which they were safe. They didn't have to go outside of the city. And so it took on an almost impregnable uh, character, surrounded by valleys on a steep ridge, and even for water, the residents didn't have to go out. It was uh, between the years of 1864 to 1867 that a British man uh, named Charles Warren... Uh, uh, engaged in extensive uh, excavation of the area, and he found uh, this particular uh, shaft. It is now known as Warren's Shaft, uh, the one that accessed the Gihon Spring and which was the water supply uh, for the city of David. It wasn't called the city of David then. It was called Jebus uh, after the Jebusites who lived there even before David got there. And they're a branch of the Canaanites. You've read about the Canaanites in the Bible. So this was Jebus before city of David and city of David before uh, Jerusalem. Well, the shaft that Charles Warren discovered was not the only tunnel, apparently, which tapped into an exterior water supply. As the city grew, it grew west, particularly under Solomon, so as to become a little more like present-day Jerusalem. Uh, The population grew with it, and so the water supply through Warren's shaft became inadequate. And so King Solomon, David's son, constructed another tunnel, and then after him, a king of Israel known as Hezekiah in 701 B.C. built also an additional tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel has been located, and if you visit Israel and the city of David, just south of modern-day Jerusalem today, and if you're stout of heart, you could go through Hezekiah's tunnel. There's still water in it, so you have to wear special 
of footwear and use flashlights and so on. Uh, but if you're a faint of heart and don't want to go through Hezekiah's tunnel, they have also found one almost parallel to it. It's a dry tunnel that you could go through. It's quite interesting. Hezekiah's tunnel in particular, we know, in fact, how it was formed. Uh, because an inscription by the engineer, the chief engineer under King Hezekiah, was found near the Pool of Siloam. You know about the Pool of Siloam. It's just south of the city of David. Uh, that's where the Lord performed one of his most droma- dramatic miracles. There at the Pool of Siloam, uh, a, um, an inscription in the rock was found, and it was a recording by Hezekiah's engineer with regard to how this tunnel came to be. Let me read it to you. A couple thousand years old, quite interesting. Behold the tunnel. This is the story of its cutting. While the miners swung their picks one towards the other. See, they started on opposite sides, one group in the north, one in the south, and their intent was to meet somewhere in the middle. While they swung their picks one towards the other, and when there remained only three cubits to cut, the voices of one calling his fellow was heard. So there was a resonance in the rock coming from both north and south. So the day they broke through... Uh, the miners struck one against the other, pick against pick, and the water flowed from the spring towards the pool, 1,200 cubits, approximately 1,500 feet straight through solid bedrock. And they listened carefully to the sound of their voices as they got close and their pickaxes, and they met uh, within uh, just a few inches of one another. And this is before... Uh, the day of all of our modern equipment and all the rest. They just listened carefully, and thus is the construction of Hezekiah's uh, tunnel. I would like for us to learn just a tad bit more about how this place, first Jebus, came then to be the city of David, and which we now know today to be Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem. And we can find out about it by consulting uh, the scripture, in particular, Second Samuel chapter 5. So here's where you come in if you'd like to follow along. Second Samuel chapter 5, not too difficult to find. If you have found First Samuel, you're well on the way. Second Samuel chapter 5, a most interesting text. We'll find out more about this particular place called the city of David. Second Samuel chapter 5, here we go, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, south, the city of the patriarchs, south of Jerusalem. That's where David was, a place called Hebron. The tribes, all the tribes together, collectively, united for the first time, came together to David at this place saying, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. We too, say they, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Previously, verse 2, they say, when Saul was king over us, Saul being the first king of Israel, you, David, you were the one who led Israel out. 
He was the king, yeah, but you were the one who really performed the kingly function. You led Israel out and in, and the Lord said to you, you, David, will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel, this was official, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. They anointed David as king. Can I tell you what's unusual about that? He already was anointed as king at least one time previous to this. The first king of Israel, I mentioned he's Saul, is gone. He's dead. He is deceased at this point. So God's prophet, Samuel, was given the task by God of officially anointing Saul's replacement. And God said, I have selected a king. Samuel had no authority to select him, only to recognize him and anoint him. God said, I have selected a king for myself from among the sons of Jesse. Jesse had a number of them. Interestingly, the one God selected was not the oldest, the biggest, the strongest. No, it was the youngest. You know, David, a youth with ruddy complexion. It's a surprise, but this was God's choice. And the Lord said, arise. Anoint him, David, for this is he. He is my choice. He's the one I choose to replace Saul as king over Israel. And Samuel did as God told him to do. He anointed his choice, King David. So the people of Israel come to Hebron at this point, and it is about 1000 BC, just to give you a a frame of reference. It's about a 1,000 B.C. at this point, about 3,000 years ago. They come now united. They were disunited. You see, some of the people accepted God's choice of David as king, but others did not. They wanted to follow another. Finally, they fell on hard times, you see. Things were not working out to the extent they did things their way rather than God's. They were now unified in coming to Hebron so as to enter into covenant with David and anoint him as king. The point is, he already was, but finally, God's chosen Israel, finally, they comply with his designated king. They accept his choice. And folks... You know, when you accept God's designated king, good things happen. Here's what happened, verse 6. Now the king and his men, David and his men, went to Jerusalem. They traveled north from Hebron against the Jebusites. Remember, that's the people group living there in Jebus. They're the Jebusites. They're the inhabitants of the land. And they, the Jebusites, said to David, you shall not come in here, but, listen to what they say, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. 
David's first official action as king of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah was to establish his capital at Jerusalem. Uh, there's a little problem, however. It was inhabited at the time not by Israelites but by Jebusites. Earlier on, in the conquest of the promised land, God authorized the removal of the Canaanites from the land. God, if you have a problem with this, you could discuss it with him. I'm just telling you what he said. God said, I'm going to give you this land. And you will remove the people who are in it now, including the Jebusites. But that never happened under Joshua during the conquest of the land. And so the Jebusites are still very much in position and in place here. Why did Israel fail to remove them? I'll tell you why. It was, it was too hard. It, 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 I mean, they didn't go willingly. And Israel could not evacuate them because, remember, they had a, a nigh unto uh, impregnable position. Uh, they're on a ridge, and they're surrounded on three sides by valleys. And the Jebusites were so confident, in fact, uh, about their defensive posture that they utter a sarcastic proverb. It's ancient sarcasm here. They say to King David... <coughs> You're not going to be able to take us. Are you kidding? Even the blind and the lame amongst us can turn you away. That's what they're kind of saying right there. So they taunted him feeling so secure. Well, it appears that David was not happy with the proverb. So it says in verse 7, Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. In case you're wondering... What Zion is, Zion is the city of David. In case you're wondering what the city of David is, it is, it is Jerusalem. It's a topic of great political interest today in the Middle East. There are all kinds of efforts uh, to disavow any evidence of the fact that this was ever the city of David, the place of his uh, uh, capital, his palace, and all the rest. That kind of flies in the face of the word of God. So David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and we're going to find out how he did it. Verse 8, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind. So he turns their sarcastic taunt back on them, and he essentially is saying, to me, you're all the lame and the blind. You Jebusites pose no threat to me. So he used this as an insinuation of their incompetence, all of them. And he says, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, and here's how, through the water tunnel. That's true. It was quite a defensive place, almost impregnable. A frontal assault would have ended in failure. David, wiser than that, discovered the water tunnel. Do you know what? Uh, and he entered it, he and his men, from outside the walls of Jebus, from the Gihon Spring, into the water tunnel, and thus gained entrance into the city and took it, establishing it as his stronghold. It is very possible can't say with certainty, 
But it's very possible that the shaft I mentioned to you earlier, Warren's shaft, discovered in the 1800s by British archaeologist Charles Warren, it's very possible this is the very one through which David and his men entered the city of Jebus. So, verse 9, David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. Milo is a Hebrew word meaning the filling. It appears that David expanded Jebus and filled in all of its places of vulnerability. So he built up ramparts and watchtowers all around the city of David to make it even more secure. Verse 10, David became greater and greater. Why? Well, because the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then notice this. Hiram, king of Tyre. Have you heard of Tyre and Sidon or Tyre and Sidon? Might sound a little more familiar. Those are cities uh, to the north of this city, the city of David, on the Mediterranean coast in or near present day Lebanon. These were Phoenician people, seafaring Phoenicians. These were non-Israelites. These were not direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not know Yahweh. They worshipped false gods. I want you to notice with that background that their king, Hiram, sent messengers uh, to King David of Israel. With cedar trees. You've heard of the cedars of Lebanon? Cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons. Boy, we could use a few of these guys tomorrow night. And they built a house for David. Uh, By the way, in recent days, uh, an Israeli uh, lady, an archaeologist, uh, made an unbelievable archaeological find that's causing all kinds of trouble over there in the Middle East, it appears she found evidence of David's palace here. Uh, Not trouble for me, I just love this, but a trouble for the folks who want to deny that David ever existed, that this ever was the capital of Israel, and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, Hiram, the non-Israelite king, uh, recognizes David as God's anointed one, and in deference to him, out of reverence for him, show as, so as to show respect for him. Though a non-Israelite, he contributes to the construction uh, of God's anointed king's palace here uh, at, at Jerusalem. That's what Hiram did. And then verse 12, David realized the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Meanwhile, David, get this, I really wanted to skip verse 13, but we're not allowed to. Yes, yeah, got to be all of the scripture, you see. Meanwhile, David, I want to skip it because it's such a good story without this. It's such a story of uh, victory and virtue and unity and uh, all the rest, and then, uh, meanwhile, David took more com- 
concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Look, I don't doubt for one second that David loved God. But in this particular practice, he blatantly sinned against the God whom he loves. It's possible, isn't it? It's possible to love God and yet not to do what he says from time to time. Doesn't seem like it is, but it is. So David sinned against the very God he loved and the God who loved him more than anyone could possibly love him. He tried to meet his own needs. I mean, that's what sin is, isn't it? Independence from God, autonomy from God, doing our own thing, trying to take care of ourselves, essentially saying to God, thanks for all your wonderful offers, but I think I can handle my life better than you. Ah, so that's what King David did. He takes on all these women and all the rest. And you know, it was very common practice in the day. Maybe David could have said, hey, everyone's doing it. And they were. All the national leaders in uh, the ancient world were doing this. All these partnerships with other ladies were sort of partnerships of political convenience, you know. They were, they were to make alliances and coalitions and all the rest. And maybe David said, hey, you know, um, Everyone's doing it, you know. That, why not me? <sighs> you know, if God gives one the privilege of being in a unique and special undeserved covenant relationship with him, we're not supposed to be like everybody else. It just doesn't work. And God made this clear. There's no doubt about it. God had Moses say this earlier on in Deuteronomy about any who would be king of Israel. Uh, God said through Moses in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. listen to this, he, meaning whoever would be Israel's king, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. I don't think God ceased to love David whom he referred to as a man after his own heart. Um, but the consequence of doing things outside of God's will was very telling. You know the story. You talk about your dysfunctional family. You talk about all kinds of domestic upheaval, sons fighting and wanting to kill their own dad. And uh, We ought to know this. Father knows best. Come on, folks. We don't have to be like all the other nations when God said, I want you to be a holy nation. We just don't have to do things the way the world does it. It's not exactly like the world seems to be pulling anything really good off. It's in a mess. I don't want to join that party, do you? I'd rather be a citizen of heaven and do things God's way. So even King David really, really blew it here. Well, look at verse 17. When the Philistines, you've heard of them, they're like all over the place in the Old Testament, it seems like. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, the news traveled fast. All the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Here's what the Philistines tried to pull off. It was a preemptive strike. The news traveled fast. Oh, my. All Israel has united around the anointed King David, who is gone up 
to Jebus to establish it at his, as his base of operations. He's going to establish it as the capital of Israel. We have got to remove him uh, before he becomes too deeply uh, entrenched and stable in leading from the city of David. Well, as I was reading this, I thought, wow, what a remarkable parallel between uh, Israel's King David and Israel's greater King Jesus. Israel's King David was immediately opposed by this people group called the Philistines in kind of a preemptive strike. And they essentially said, you know, let's murder Israel's king before he has a chance to establish himself. And, you know, Satan tried the same strategy, didn't he? Satan tried the same strategy. He put it into false King Herod to uh, take the life of all Hebrew male children born around the time of, uh, of the prophesied king of Israel. You remember that terrible, terrible attempt at genocide by, by King Herod. As if Satan is saying, I know who the Redeemer is. I know his name is Jesus. Satan knows the Bible, you know that. You don't get brownie points just for knowing what's in it. We're supposed to live by it, not just know it. Satan knows the Bible, perhaps better than some of us. He knew about the coming one. He knew about the king of kings. He knew about the most high God who would come to be Emmanuel as redeemer of those who don't deserve it but need it. And Satan wanted a preemptive strike. Let's snuff out his life, thought he. I'll do it through King Herod. Let's just do that so that I could receive worship and so that he does not. Thank God. Satan's just a created being, powerful for sure. But far better, far better to yield to the most high God who is creator, not a created being. Well, well, God knew about that. And just as he gave King David the victory, he surely gave King Jesus the victory. As I was thinking about this text, I saw a bunch of other parallels between Israel's ancient King David and Israel's ultimate king, greater King Jesus. Did you notice as we spoke about how Israel at one time in her history essentially rejected God's anointed king. Israel was un- was not united in her uh, support of God's choice. She re- rejected uh, God's anointed and brought upon herself all manner of travail and suffering. But when she unitedly yielded uh, to God's anointed king, great blessing immediately followed. And folks, I have to, I have to tell you, uh, Israel, though she has as a people group down to this day rejected King Jesus, there will come a day when a remnant in Israel, what's left of Israel after a great time of tribulation will accept him. And when she does great blessing will follow once again. When you accept anybody, Jew or Gentile, when you accept God's anointed king, great blessing follows both king david and king jesus didn't they both have a very long and difficult road to their thrones david was anointed but it took a long time before he was uh, uh submitted to and yielded to as the king of israel at the capital which he established in jerusalem the road to his throne was laden with all manner of uh suffering and scorn and hatred and Ah, what about the Lord Jesus? Uh, The road to his throne, laden with thorns and scourging and 
uh, mockery and the most excruciating death devised by man. He suffocated on a cross. He too has to go through all that, or is willing to go through all that until the time when every knee shall recognize him seated on the throne, every every tongue shall confess Jesus is is Lord. Quite a parallel between Israel's ancient king and Israel's ultimate king. Many similarities between King David and King Jesus, but also many, many differences. King David uh, could quite successfully deliver Israel from the Canaanite threat and from the Philistines, but he could not deliver Israel from their sin. That was her biggest problem. The enemy wasn't from without, it was from within. Israel couldn't deliver Israel from her sin because he himself had that problem, you see. He couldn't deliver himself from his sin. You know about David and Bathsheba. We read about this sorrowful record of him taking on many, many women when it's God's will for one man to be irreversibly bound to one woman so that the two become one unit. So here's where the similarity between these two personalities ends. King David couldn't save anybody from sin. He needed to be saved from his own. But King Jesus, on the other hand, though tempted, sinned not. He's the perfect sin substitute because he's the perfect one. There, there, there is no pretender to the throne of King Jesus who satisfies the prerequisite of sinlessness. It took a sinless one to die for sinful ones. Our enemy is not from without. Our enemy is from within. It's our sin nature. And the Lord Jesus is the only one who could give us victory over it. I noticed in this text there are two very different responses to King David. Did you notice? Hiram submitted to him as God's anointed king. But the Philistines rejected him as God's anointed king. And so, too, there are very, very different responses, aren't there, to King Jesus? It's simple. He can either be accepted or rejected, just as King David was, either accepted or rejected. Do you mind if I ask you, which is it for you? What has been your response to King Jesus? There's only two possible ones. Is it acceptance of him as God's anointed? Or is it rejection of him? Accepting King David, did you notice, led to blessing. Rejecting him led to trouble. In the same way, accepting King Jesus leads to eternal blessing. Rejecting him leads to, think about it, eternally sustained alienation from Almighty God. Which is it for you? I don't want to meddle, but it's an important question. What's your position? What are you going to do with King Jesus? Here's the life lesson I would like for us to derive from our visit to the city of David. It's this. Our response to God's anointed king is what determines our eternal destiny. Our response to God's anointed king is what determines our destiny. First John. 5, 11, and 12. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Here are the choices. He who has the son, acceptance, has the life. 
He who does not have the Son, rejection, does not have the life. Can you see it again? Old Testament, New Testament, same thing. Acceptance or rejection of God's anointed. And how we respond to God's anointed is the singular thing that determines where we spend eternity. It's not to what extent we obeyed God's commandments. Maybe you better than me. It's irrelevant. It's not what denomination we belong to. It's not our church attendance. It's not our contribution to it. It's not our New Year's resolutions. It's not our attempt at moral and ethical behavior. It's not our humanitarian philanthropic efforts. It's not religious tradition. It's no liturgy. It's nothing. One singular issue determines our destiny. And we'll stand before God the Father one day. And he'll ask this question. How have you responded to my son? What did you do with my son? He's my anointed. That's what the Christ means. The anointed one. Was it Hiram's response? Not someone even naturally connected to the covenant people, but someone perhaps grafted in by yieldedness to God's anointed. Are you like Hiram or are you like the Philistines? Let's murder him. If not literally, let me murder his reputation. Let me reduce him. He's not God's anointed. He's not the savior. I'll just make him a good teacher. You murdered him. You murdered his full identity. Let me just ignore him. Let me be indifferent to him. You murder the reality of the Christ. It could be outright rebellion against him or it could be simple indifference. It doesn't matter. That singular response to God's anointed king will determine your destiny. What have you done with my son? He who has the son has the life. What if you're not good? What if you're like David? What if you're prone to sin? What if you have sin? It's irrelevant. None of those issues matter. God has a solution to sin. The real issue is, what have you done with the son? He who has the son has the life, eternal life. He who does not have the son shall not see life. You may not like this, but I have to complete the thought. But the wrath of God abides on him. Uh, The God who came, uh, uh, the God who, who reduced himself to enfleshment, the God who, 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 I don't know how he did it, somehow contained all of his transcendence in the form of a lovable baby, is also a consuming fire. Acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ causes us to know him as Abba Father. We feel his embrace. We're adopted into his family. He casts all our sin behind his back. Rejection means we'll then stand before him As consuming fire. Which is it? The Israelites survived. The Philistines are long gone. Deliverance for one group. Destruction for the other. Don't you see it? It's just. There's no middle ground. There's no. 
third option. I met with a man yesterday for a few hours, essentially pleading with him to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his words. I wish there was an argument. I wish there was a fight. I wish there was some noticeable resistance, some verbal give and take. He let me give him my best. And then he simply said, when I invited him to know the Lord Jesus, he said, I'm not ready yet. That looks like... uh, a uh, diplomatic sort of um, uh, third response. I've neither accepted him nor rejected him. I'm not ready yet. No, no, no. It's a rejection of the son. If you've heard of him, if you know of him, if you understand why he came, what he did, if you know your nature, if you know his nature, yours is to sin, his is to save, then you are without excuse. You're as ready as ready could be. So the Bible says today can be the day of your salvation. Your response, my response to God's anointed king is the singular issue that will decide our very eternity. So I ask you this question answerable only to God, not to me. What have you done with God's anointed King Jesus. Have you accepted him as your personal Savior and Lord? Or have you rejected him? I want to pray, and sooner pastor will come to give us a chance to respond privately, personally, and with some attention. Uh, To the extent the Lord is prodding you, moving in your heart. But I want us to pray. I want to create an atmosphere in which we invite him in the power of his spirit to work. I know you want me to do that, don't you? Uh, You need some nudging, I need some nudging, so as to render the right response to God's anointed. So therefore, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I don't think we could respond to you unless you enable it. And surely you do, if we will. I surely do... Pray you go through our midst in the power of your spirit, even at this very moment today. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So now, right now, Lord, would you go through this auditorium and stir us up, shake us up, uh, move on the inside of those of us who have not yet rendered the right response to your anointed King, Jesus. Oh, I can't think of how wonderful this Christmas would be if it became for each of us here more than Santa, but all about the Savior. So I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that the ones, I don't know you do, who have not yet welcomed you as into their hearts as King, as Lord, as Savior, as one who suffered and died as substitute for sin, I really do pray you would enable it tonight. That person, that one, that two, that more, will know it. They'll sense it. It's your doing, and that one must respond. Please let it be for your glory, King Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen.